Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mogala, where I speak to violinists from around the world. Thanks so much for coming across this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It really helps us out to create more great episodes for you. Before we get to this amazing interview for today's episode, I just want to remind everybody that we're on social media. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're also on YouTube. For all our uh, friends of the Violent Podcast who are not really English speakers, well, I have a solution for you. We are on YouTube, and as a matter of fact, we have different languages in the captions, so that way we can make the Violin Podcast more accessible for you. So if English is not your first language, just wanted to let you know that you can go on YouTube, youtube.com slash Podcast, and all the episodes are on there, and you can switch to different languages. We have most European languages, most Asian languages, and most Latin American languages. So I invite you to go on YouTube and watch the Violin Podcast from there. Another great thing about the Violin Podcast, especially on Spotify, so for all the Spotify listeners, and if you're not on Spotify, um, well, go to Spotify because this is only for Spotify listeners, that I'm able to do polls on the Violin Podcast. And last week I posted a question from Nikki Chewy's episode, do you play on the modern instrument or do you play on the old instrument? And for those of you who voted, most of you play on modern instruments, which is a really fascinating thing. Um, most of you don't play on old instruments you both you usually play on modern instruments so yeah that was an interesting fact and today's poll and in today's poll do you play chamber music or do you play solo and in today's poll we're and in today's poll i want to know from you do you either play chamber music or do you play more solo or do you even do teaching? Hmm. Gotta do that one more time. And in this week's episode of the Violin Podcast, we're doing another poll. And I want to know from you, do you mostly do chamber music or do you do solo? Let me know in the poll. All you got to do is just go on the Spotify app, click on the podcast, the Violin Podcast, and then enter in what you do. Do you do chamber music or do you do solo? Or if you don't even do both of those, do you teach? I want to know if you're a teacher also. So, you know, make sure you participate in the poll. I want to know your thoughts. And for those of you who are beginners of the violin podcast, meaning that you're a beginner violinist or you're not even a beginner, you don't even play the violin, but you're interested in getting to know a little bit more about becoming a violinist or being a part of the violin community. Well, if you're interested in learning the violin, well, I got news for you. I have a great intro to violin course that is absolutely free. All you got to do is sign up with your email and password, and you just got to uh, click the link to my Thinkific course. It's absolutely free it's for intro to violin. And it's not so much uh, a course on how to play the violin, but it's more of an introduction, intro to violin. I thought that would be the best way to get beginners and new people involved in the process of playing the violin. 
is what you'll learn in the intro to violin course is how to set yourself up for success. So what kind of teacher should you look for? What kind of instrument should you try to get? Um, what kind of accessories do you sh do you or should you get? I explain that in this course. So I invite you to click on the link down below if you want to get to be a little bit more familiar with the course. And again, it's absolutely free. So there you have it. And now for today's guest of the Violin Podcast, I am really delighted to invite Corin Lee, a violinist in the Ethel Quartet. And we have a great conversation, which I hope you really enjoy. We talk uh, about various topics. We talk about violin and how it's related to sports. We talk about what it's like to be a chamber musician and how Ethel Quartet really thinks outside the box and what the collaboration process is like. So here we go, Corin Lee the Ethel Quartet. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I have Corin Lee on the Violin Podcast. And uh, Corin, I, can, I couldn't wait to talk to you because you're a fascinating fellow. <laughs> I, I, did, I did my research on you. you went, you're on YouTube and also with your collaboration with Ethel Quartet. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so um, excited to get to know you. Um, how are you today? Where are you currently based? And uh, how is... It looks like you have a pretty professional mic setup right there. So yeah, you're pretty used to the the electronic stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, really interesting podcasts. Love them. And yeah, in the back here, uh, kind of had to go like you know remote style uh, during the whole COVID thing. So uh, you know, got got a microphone. We got uh, two lights and a duvetine. For background, so editors can have more freedom. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> cool. We all knew it was coming this way, so yeah. I I felt like when I when when COVID nineteen hit, all of a sudden I had to be not not only were we just like violinists, but all of a sudden we had to be like our own production people. We have to like figure out the the lighting, the microphones. Like you know, I have an extra camera right in front of me for for people who are watching on YouTube. And yeah, it's like kind of overwhelming <laughs> in the beginning, but. Yeah. Um, but first, I want I want to get to know you, Corin. Uh, who is Corin Lee? You know, well, like who like, besides being a violin, it's like who are you as a person? Like, um, what kind of music do you perform, etc.? So I'm classically trained, but I've always been very curious uh, with you know experimenting, or you know the more the more the creative side, less of the I'm gonna go be in an orchestra for thirty years and you know stuff like that. Um, as a person, I'm I consider myself decently well-rounded. I did, you know, varsity sports in in high school, basketball for three years, even during my audition season for conservatories, had some numb fingers, you know. But oh man, I I can relate. Although I didn't do basketball, I did track and field in high school. So um, I'm glad I had that I have that connection with you like that. Yeah, for sure. And I I think that's really important also for like the whole development of the person because. You can get competitive in music, but it's not. That's not really the point. It's like when in sports, it's like purely a competition. You know, it kind of forces you to bring out that that uh, that energy, and it's really helped me actually with violin, uh, not in the competitive way, but just like you know, being active and keeping my my brain fresh and you know my health stuff like that. Yeah, I found that to be the same when I when I was doing track and field. I did um, high jump, long jump, triple jump, and I um, I did a little bit of volleyball and basketball, but you know I wasn't too good in basketball, so I just decided to be 
a runner and jumper. But yeah, I found that, you know, having sports in my life actually helped me become a better, uh, help, help, helped me got better in my practice. And um, I don't know if that was the same with you, but, you know, with with sports, you have a structure, like, you know, what kind of workouts you need to do to achieve this kind of result. And I felt that was really similar for me in um, track and field. Was that the same for you? Yeah, there's a certain uh, routine and like, you know, practice routine. A lot of the underlying principles of being a successful musician, as well as a probably a successful athlete are very common, like the discipline, uh, assessing your routines. Uh, bringing your own energy to it, you know, not really relying on anybody else, you know, some common principles. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how, in all of this, how did violin come into your life? Uh, my mom's a, a well-known Suzuki teacher. So she, she trains teachers. She also has a studio. So I was kind of born into it. Uh, free lessons for a very long time. <laughs> you know, didn't have to worry that, about that. That must have been a perk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty big perk if you add it up. Right. It's like, you know, 50 bucks a lesson, you know. Um, and then I uh, I went on to study with her teacher, Camilla Wicks, who recently passed away. But she's she was one of the first uh, female soloists. So she was really a pioneer and she really taught you how to be yourself, you know, and how to express and get in touch with the violin. And I was very lucky because I had her when I was like. 14 so i had no idea how to connect with like you know any emotions back then but those lessons they creep in later right so right i mean who who knows who they really are at like age of 13 14 nobody really knows you know at that point you're just trying to you're just to, to begin to discover yourself um yeah. and uh, yeah it's very interesting because you mentioned this age because we, ha we actually have a lot of students and violinists who are 18 and under actually who listen to these podcasts to get a lot of uh wisdom so yeah, if you're if you're listening, if you're young, if you don't know what you're doing yet, we're, we've all been there. And if people say that they have, it's all a lie. <laughs> um, but you know, when I was when I was doing my research on you, Corin, uh, you know, you are definitely trying to, you know, push push the bar in your, in your own performance. And we'll talk about Ethel Quartet in a moment, but I want to talk about you a little bit because, um, you know, you do a lot of I, I can tell that you love your loop pedal a lot <laughs> in your YouTube videos. So I, I, I'm curious to know how that loop pedal came about, how you started using it in your performances. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, you know, classically trained um, youth orchestras and then, you know, Juilliard. But at Juilliard, I really kind of found my identity as a as a musician. I was I was practicing really hard doing all the shifting exercises, all the the scales, all the the standard uh, repertoire, but I was, I was again. I've always been like you know that that person who was very curious about what else can I do with this. So it it all started um, with the Bach Partita Number One, and remembering that my teacher Camilla Wicks, um, she was like, "Oh, you can <laughs> play it on top." So I'm like, "Oh yeah, well, what about a loop pedal?" So I experimented with that. And then I researched loops, and a lot of loops are very short, and they're very strict to the tempo. So what really fascinated me was playing something like Bach, which is timeless in a way, and then looping that and like playing with that. So that's how I kind of got started on the the loop station. Yeah, I found it. I find it uh, mind blowing too that B minor partita when all of a sudden you can take the double and you can perform it on top of the other movement like the Allemande and whatnot. I find that to be like really really cool. Bach again is this timeless composer that even though like 
he composed music over 300 years ago, we can still relate back to him as like trying to search for something new and then creating that new. So it was really awesome to listen to those videos on, on YouTube. And I've also um, got a chance to listen to like your Steve Reich arrangement of um, uh, different trains. So I'm curious to know like what your um, approach is to contemporary classical music because you're trying to experiment, push boundaries. How did contemporary music come about in your, in your development as a musician? Well, going off the Bach Partita, I looked for, you know, other Baroque pieces. For example, looping Pe I looped Paganini 24 live, um, and the, like, the Sarasate and the Waxman. Uh, and, you know, just looking for, for that kind of repertoire to be pushed, in a way, you know, with technology. And in a, in a, in a cool, but not, like, cheap way. I, I try to, because I think that's kind of dangerous sometimes. It's like, oh, let's just implement this technology because it's cool, but it doesn't actually really do much. Yeah, you definitely so want I'm the quality to be there. Yeah. So that, of course, led me to um, new music in a way, however you want to define that. <laughs> I mean, it's still pretty old music. <laughs> uh, if it didn't come out yesterday, then it's old music, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the violin phase was written for loops. Uh, but back in that time, people didn't really loop it live. So I loved to uh, love that, just that little tweak to it. Oh, I think it'd be much more exciting if you could loop it live and then also use other guitar effects like the octave pedal. And then, of course, once you get to violin phase, you're like, oh, man, like I love uh, Steve Rush. Like, what else can I do? It's like different trains is a beast. You know, it's written for, you know, multiple quartets, you know, and and then I'm like, OK, well, let's if I can loop that, you know, let's let's try it. Let's get in to Ableton let's learn a new skill and it was awesome I mean the I'm I'm like really an audio guy so like in that in that YouTube video the pictures are really just like you're scrolling through Google image search but, <laughs> right <laughs> you know, it, was, it was a graduation recital there's no funds or anything <laughs> but yeah cool yeah I I didn't realize it was a graduation recital was that for your for for your Juilliard recital or for Yale that was for Yale and actually um Funny enough, uh, actually, I'd, I'd love to share like kind of what I played on those recitals. Because Please, yes, because I, I you, obviously you also perform the the Carmen Fantasy also on that recital, right? And you looped yeah. that at the end also. Yeah, and that idea was from uh, my friend Christian, who he's also virtuoso, um, and I thought that was like another level up from the Bach loop because you're like playing one of the most virtuoso pieces and then you have to loop it. And I just thought it was like going to be really exciting for not only myself, the pianist, but I think the audience would have to be like on the edge of their seats. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's one thing to loop Bach, but then it's the, another thing to loop like virtuoso pieces like the Carmen and, and Pagnini 24. I can't imagine what the audience must have felt like when they were in that concert hall like they're expecting you know carmen fantasy bach whatever you know all these pieces and all of a sudden you see all these electronics in front of you <laughs> right that must have been kind of different for um did you get any feedback from the audience like with like how they felt after that uh recital yeah that depends on the person right so for the for the yale recital everybody kind of knew me they i've done it in senior class a bunch of times and of course everybody will come with their own opinions even before you step on stage right so you can't control that 
but it was a bird's nest. That's what the tech guy called it. You know, just like a complete mess on stage. It looks horrible. <laughs> so you had to like, we had to take a duvetine and we had to put it over some of the, the wires because it was literally a bird's nest. But <laughs> um, yeah, the cable it, management yeah. maybe was, was a learning lesson for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just throw something over it and just cover it up, you know? Or just like, like a um, blank, like a black blanket, you know? <laughs> It's just like, yeah, just go. No, nothing to see here. Nothing to just, see. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, people thought it was interesting. Um, I think it's definitely way more exciting to to do the live loops than the pre-recorded stuff. I did have pre-recorded stuff, but the live loops just really keeps people, you know, on the other edge of their seats. And I kind of thought about the process of taking somebody who hasn't seen the classical electronic stuff before. So I actually started with the five string uh, Zeta violin to play the box suite uh, number six, which is written for five strings. So I thought that was like a, you know, maybe like a, a, a neat opportunity to introduce them that this recital is not going to be the same old, same old, you know. And then, you know, next you bring out Vitaly Chacon, but, but you put it on a MIDI piano with a really nice organ instrument, you know. And then then you kind of build them up, right? <laughs> you know, to all the layers. Yeah, so that obviously that's where this idea has kind of came about. Have you been doing any sort of projects like since then? Because I believe that was like like eight years ago or so, right? Um, yeah. Have you been doing any, like, any like personal projects of your own where you're experimenting with the loop and different collaborations with different composers? Yeah, so most of my collaborations are with Ethel because I'm, I'm full-time with Ethel. But personally speaking, I still shred out on, you know, a Paganini 5 on electric. I'm uh, continuing to learn how to improve my production skills because I think there's a lot of potential in MIDI piano itself. And I've even, I've even brought up the concept of like, okay, well, let's see, for our quartet, you know, what if we added a MIDI piano? We can literally just turn into this complete beast of a of a machine <laughs> you know uh there's so many sounds so just really learning that skill set on how to you know use like lfos or like you know how to adjust the sine waves or you know produce your own instruments or your sounds or take your own audio like in ableton warp them and then you know add some cool effects so you really have a unique sound or you have the capability you have the tools to create your own color that you hear in your mind because it all comes from our imagination anyway and all of a sudden it becomes like this multimedia project, as you were saying with the different trains um, recording on, on YouTube, which by the way, I'll leave a link in the podcast description notes. So that way, you know, people can really listen and uh, watch that video. It's really, really awesome. But I remember I was uh, attending and was a part of uh, DJ Spooky's Quantopia. I don't know if you know who DJ Spooky is, but he does like a lot of multimedia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was cele uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the creation of the internet, right? And not only did he have like, uh, you know, a string quartet, which I was playing a part of, but he also, you know, he had this iPad that he was adjusting all the, the reverb, the delay and everything and all. And, and also there was like, a bunch of stuff that he was controlling on his iPad with the with the visual, which is, you know, gnarly, which is really, really fantastic. Does Ethel do a lot of like multimedia projects, you know, um, and uh, I mean, I know that they're a contemporary group that you're that you guys do. But do you have you expanded upon the contemporary classical and do like other multimedia projects? Absolutely. Um... I think one of the most powerful things about Ethel is that we we explore, you know, other collaborators, you know, whether it's a drumline, a Native American flute player, or if you bring in 
like a set designer or uh, a costume designer uh, for example our our show circus wandering city was a it was pretty much like a musical <laughs> it was a combination <laughs> was cool. of theater and live concert you know and we're we're acting we brought in uh professional clowns to to train us uh we you know that was a we you know you have lighting design you have all these all these collaborators and one of the biggest lessons i learned actually not to harp on you know the past but when i was creating my own multimedia productions in school i'm like wait a minute i i fundamentally know my limitations so with ethel we bring in you know people who dedicate their whole life kind of like us to the violin you know but it except to their own art form and it produces a much better product <laughs> right and i that was going to be one of my talking points with you um first of all the river and also the the circus so i, w I would love for you to comment on um the the project with the river with the robert and um tell me about that process and I, I saw the trailer video for the album and it was like recorded in your living room which i thought was like the really it was such a really cool thing and i'm sure it must have been a really awesome project to be a part of but i would love for you to gain the perspective of you know of the quartet when recording this album sure yeah robert mirabal is a really good native american flute player you know he's famous on his own and from the beginning you know we we created a program with a collaborator that we've been collaborating for a very long time and that makes a huge difference because right now you know you can collaborate with anybody and you know we, we still do that but it's really the deeper collaborations that yield the way better programs by like like exponentially better it like compounds over time so Ethel's relationship with Robert was before my time. So it's like, you know, 10 plus years at least. And when you know somebody, when you get to know somebody, when you get to know their music, when they get to know each one of you, like the collaboration resulted in The River, which is we're not just saying, hey, we can do some backing tracks for you while you do your own thing. Or you can maybe play this part that was already written for this other instrument. It's like, no, we create new music together in like this amazing relationship and yeah i mean that's i think that's why the the music i feel is so authentic it's a true collaboration among like classical instruments and native american flute and yeah it's, it's a beautiful thing yeah and you're also combining different sounds that are not traditionally in the classical realm right and you're de definitely expanding outside of, you know, the four traditional instruments. It almost reminds me of like Brooklyn Rider, how they do a lot of their collaborations. I think, um, I don't know if they released an album within the last year, but I think two or three years ago, they released an album with the vocalists, um, which was also, you know, trying to expand outside of the, what we know as a classical quartet with just four string, um, string instruments. But <clears throat> what was your... Um, well, let me, let me back up. How long ago did you join Ethel? I joined 2015, January 1st. <laughs> so literally right, right New Year's Day, day January 1st. <laughs> the audition was like maybe like a month before or something. Tell me about that audition because I'm sure a lot of people are curious. How do you audition for a quartet? Like it's not like a traditional, you know, orchestra job or, you know, where you do the blind screen and you audition. Now, how does that process work uh for the quartet side of things and how did it work for you yeah so i always think of a 
quartet audition similar to a basketball team where like if you draft the right person that person can make a huge difference either good or bad <laughs> because okay yeah like, that makes that's a perfect this, analogy <laughs> yeah so like if you're placing the starting five right and one person that's 20 percent of of whatever you're doing as a team so with the with the quartet you know it's it's similar 25 percent. so there were uh two rounds but um but it was different because ethel is different and i believe I'm different and not an ego way, but just like literally like I'm just like a different type of person looking for different things. For example, yeah, you're a different breed of violinist. You know, you're definitely, you know, a, you know, different by trying to loop pedals and looping Paganini. Like, yeah, you're definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I again, was fortunate to find myself as an artist throughout Juilliard and Yale pretty clearly. You know, what are my core values? My core values is creativity you know whatever that's a basic word but curious not afraid to explore you know uh, willing to try new things you know willing to put my my foot out there you know and just kind of go with that or maybe cross genre you know or you know no boundaries in that sense so before i auditioned i i really took a deep look at ethel and they had this program doc america which was crazy because that thing toured for years it was just like the perfect like show and it was a multimedia uh, project where they took the images from the epa archive um again collaborated with professionals you know doing lighting design and like you know the the images and all that stuff editing and commissioning you know four composers um and then writing their own music i'm like this this band is crazy like that is an awesome program and at that time, you know, you know, if your listeners are, you know, younger or in college, right, you know, you could say, oh, am I going to go on my solo career and just kind of go and like do everything my way? Or should I try to join a group that's already rolling? And for me, it was less about, oh, I need or I'm craving that validation for my own personal projects. At the core, I literally match with Ethel, like at the core. So I'm like, I got to go for this. So you believe in its mission statement. You believe in its uh, vision statement, mission statement. Yeah, like mission statement and exactly what they put out, you know, on stage. I'm like, this is a group that's going to let me bring my own ideas. Like I'm about to bring like trap music to uh, Rameau arrangement, you know, like right. in a couple months. That's crazy. And, like crazy as in crazy cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, they can say no. But they'll listen to it. They'll they'll play through it, and you know, most likely it'll get programmed. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, at so, least yeah. at least you have that opportunity where your voice is heard, right? Where you're yeah. not really stuck to tradition. You know, where we're not stuck with traditions of the Mozarts and the Brahms and the Beethovens, which you know, in all due respect, they're they're great composers and great musicians, and you know, compose amazing music. But also, not be afraid to try something new in this quartet model i find that you know and i i really i really resonate with you and i appreciate you you know talking to us about this because i think you know when we come to like the traditional education system in the united states i can't comment on other countries but at least in my area in the united states i feel like you know we're so focused on like and this is for the person who's listening under 18 by the way and there is a there's a little bit of a limitation because everybody's trying to get the 
best SAT scores and ACT scores, but that's really not how society works. You know, society works in collaborations and projects. And that, I felt that growing up, you know, and that's why I resonate with you in this conversation. I, I was never a good test taker. I, I threw myself into violin and my music and practicing because I was passionate about this, um, about this violin, about this thing we call violin, this wooden box that we put on our shoulder, right? And that's really awesome that Ethel is able to really be open to your ideas. Have you, was there a time where uh, you had this crazy, crazy idea and they're like, uh, maybe next season? <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty funny. We're conditioned to try everything. It's just like that culture, right? It's, it's, I mean, that's, that's why I really wanted to be in that quartet. It's, it's a culture of understanding and, you know, trying new things. So there really isn't like, oh, let's save it for next season. Like it's either going to work or it's not. We, we know when something is like dumb, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when something clicks, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, if, if something really doesn't work out, like, okay, yeah, it's not going to work out. But like, for example, in the circus program, right. Talking about pushing the boundaries, um, the other violinist, Kip Jones and I choreographed or we didn't choreograph, but we 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 had a bow fight. Like we literally I think I remember seeing the trailer to that. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, my students, please don't please don't do that. But (laughs) but yeah, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that idea was brought up. And of course, you know, the immediate reaction, even for a very open minded group was like, oh, no, no, no. But then the director was like, we can make this like a very funny thing and we can actually make it like a, you know, a a fun part of the show. I mean, it's all in the spirit. So and we use carbon fiber bows, FYI. Yes, carbon fiber, carbon fiber all the way when you're having bow fights, everybody. No wooden bows. I don't want to see any Pernambuco woods, wood bows like being than the sword but anyway <laughs> this, i've never had this kind of off the rails conversation it's just funny i do want to go to the comedy uh part of your playing because when you when i was doing some research on you on youtube you play paganini 5 on a miniature violin what size was that was that an eighth size violin that you played on you know i i don't know it's uh <laughs> It's not the smallest one, but I think it's like the the one above it. So it must Whatever be, yeah. So there's there's a thirty second, there's a sixteen, there's an eighth. So maybe like a, I mean, I don't think your hands would have done all of that on the sixteenth final. So it could have been an eighth, maybe. Yeah, Either I way, hilarious, <laughs> hilarious, and also extremely in tune for like for that for having the you know the hand and the the body that you have and then trying to get all the right notes what like please tell me that was like not was that part of your Yale recital or was that something else that was a recital in Seattle cool and um what 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 led you to the idea like hey I should play Paganini 5 on a small violin for a group of people um I yeah I just I don't know. Once you once you start going the anything is possible route, you really think of anything. Like, actually, when I was young and I went to uh, the Utah Suzuki Institute camp, I saw Nick Kendall, who's in Time for Three. He he did a recital, and one of his pieces was a percussion on trash cans, and that really inspired me. Actually, still to this day, I'm like, oh wow, you can really do anything on stage, and that's true. I mean, I don't think that just because we're trained classical means we can't do 
certain things on stage. We can do anything we want. Um, of course, there's probably a fine boundary, but that boundary is probably like, you know, not PG <laughs> 13, but you know what I mean? Like you also want to make it accessible to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You want to make it fun, accessible and coming up with that idea. I mean, I was, I was just, I did this modern piece that I just improvised for a YouTube video. I don't know if you saw that one. That was kind of a joke too, but I played on that mini violin and then, yeah, I mean, I just started practicing on it because I, yeah, I just started practicing on it for a couple of days. I'm like, what if I could do like a really hard Paganini on this? And then of course it's, you know, it doesn't sound that great, but it's, it's the people understand, right? It's like the idea, you know, the concept of this, anything is possible kind of mentality um, brought you to this idea of the liberated performer, which is something that I would love for you to talk about because I think there were moments where I've talked about performance anxiety on the violin podcast, but you actually have a program that is dedicated for performance anxiety and um, what you've been doing with like this, anything is possible. Let's try mentality kind of goes with the performance anxiety um, conversation that a lot of conservatory students and even professional musicians have. So um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on how you came about starting the liberated performer. Well, I started Liberated Performer even before I knew it. So basically, I struggled with anxiety big time. Like, I couldn't even ask for directions to Starbucks, like, period, you know, to a stranger or anything like that. It was much deeper, and it was social anxiety. So uh, combined with, you know, the pressure of auditions or the pressures of even, like, masterclass lessons or lessons with your private teacher or studio recitals or public recitals, you know, that really added up. So it's like both social anxiety plus music performance anxiety, which is a specific anxiety. So yeah, I was at, or yeah, I was at Juilliard. Basically, I'm like, okay, I really need to do something like this because I think I just worked really hard to get into Juilliard. Like I, like that's pretty much how I went down. I worked really, really hard. I'd be practicing. I'd be waking up at 4 a.m. for like two years straight, um, missing a couple days here, here and there. But I would be practicing a lot. Cause I was behind, I was in the back of my section in youth orchestra in high school. Um, so I pretty much just worked my way into Juilliard through grit and obviously, you know, good teachers, um, can't do it without the teachers. And then once I got to Juilliard, you know, I, again, practice really hard and everybody always teaches, like, if you work hard, you'll get over it. <laughs> that's kind of like a thing that's been uh, dismantled lately, but that's certainly was, uh, a big, you know, mindset years ago, you know, um, nobody ever thought the other way. And I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm practicing again. I'm waking up at like 5 a.m. going to the practice room, practicing before music theory class, but it, I'm still getting really, really nervous and something is definitely missing. So, you know, you learn uh, management techniques like, you know, breathing, you know, posture, visualization, you know, similar to basketball. Uh, Noah Kageyama has an amazing program, Bulletproof Musician, and uh, I was also lucky to study with him when I was uh, at Juilliard. He had a class there. Um, actually, <laughs> well, what was funny is he didn't have a class there, but he was kind of like auditioning to be a professor there in a way. So he took on private clients, and I was actually like one of his first because I had it so bad. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, so, but his his work really helped, like you know, running up the stairs and getting your heart pumping and learning how to how to cope and kind of manage it on, on your own. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like your heart's pumping, but you, you 
play that way and you learn how to like calm your body down which is extremely powerful for anything you know whether we're talking about emotional intelligence or you know performing it's like what a skill to have um and then uh and then yeah i i had this big competition at the end of uh senior year of juilliard and by that time i'm thinking oh my gosh i need to get a job like i need to like go out into the real world like maybe i'll go to grad school to delay it which i did but i'm like i really need to get a handle on this this anxiety part because i'm pretty sure like i'm playing like to like 70 80 percent of my full potential right and you know on stage you know maybe you can get close to the high 90s probably never 100 percent, but like you know professionals they, they get up there right so yeah but even to the professionals there's like 0.01 percent that they can't get it's like 99 percent but then there's always that one you know i yeah. i i really i really appreciate the the um the awareness that you're trying to create with performance anxiety because it's not just an effect on your on your ability to be a musician but as a human being yeah absolutely and that's right in line with uh liberated performers so you know, I was doing many of the breathing exercises and it was, it was helping and I still do them today for sure. Like I meditate, um, you know, practice, you know, managing my emotions, all that stuff. But I felt there was something deeper. And in my case, there was, there is a social anxiety aspect to it. And then also a lot of my beliefs, you know, whether you get into cognitive behavioral therapy or not, um, the cognitive side, I had many beliefs, whether they're ingrained, you know, by the culture of classical music or, or by my, my conditioning experiences that I really had to undo because every time I would go to the stage, I would literally trigger my biological basis of anxiety, right? My fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. Response. Your fight or flight. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was a big problem. So I had to uncondition that. So I did that by kind of copying the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, which is where you just go out on the street. So I was playing on the street a bunch. I would always push myself. I would go into like frozen yogurt places, get kicked out, you know, just playing music, you know, and what what that did was it liberated me from rejection. It liberated me from these like boundaries that I put on on my own mindset because it's all it's pretty much all in the mind, right? And uh, through like maybe a year or two of just constant conditioning on myself, going out there and realizing, oh my gosh, like I can actually play in public. I can actually express myself. Like I wonder if this works for other people. So at Yale, oh sorry. So I won that competition at at a at my senior year because I went out before and I performed for people. I got out of my shell and I really let my full potential come through. And funny enough in the judges comments was the difference between first and second place and third place was, uh, I was able to really feel the music a lot more. That was a kind of defining factor. So then I'm like, okay, I think I'm onto something. So at Yale, you know, I, uh, continue to develop, but I, again, I look for collaborators like uh, Dr. Diana Kenny is the, by far the leading researcher on performance, music performance anxiety specifically. So she has a lot of great content out there. Her content is super dense, but it's just like the stuff is like stands the test of time. It's kind of like, you know, like be a good person that stands the test of time, you know? So I got into her, her information and really uh, thought about it from our lens, from the performer's lens, and then created that program and then started helping my, my friends at Yale, my classmates at Yale, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, you know, uh, I think this can help a lot of people. And it's continuing to develop because I'm developing too, you know. Um, I'm only only in my 30s, so I have a lot to learn. And in fact, like, 
I think liberated performer is also going more down the spiritual path as well <laughs> now. So it's the program's always changing, but I, I feel like I can leave something behind, you know, keep the information free and hope somebody can improve on it next generation as well. It sounds like to me that the program evolves as you evolve. And then as soon as you get more content, you get more ideas, you're just adding into that liberator performer. Um, For sure. is, so is this a website? Is this a blog? Is this a program that you do? Tell, tell us a little bit more about how people can participate in that. Yeah, so there's individual lessons. So uh, I have a team of people. I have uh, Tema Wastein, uh, Patrick Galvin, who's, all, who's in California, the Bay Area. And then uh, Brendan Speltz, who's in the Escher Quartet. And um, basically, you know, you can sign up for individual coaching sessions. There is a program, there's a syllabus on online. Um, but I'm actually thinking about making, I've, I've been really inspired by Bitcoin, actually, because it's like this open source decentralized uh, protocol. And obviously, um, <laughs> preparing for an audition is not like that. But the idea of, you know, some, some sort of way that many people can contribute, um, many people can feel valued, many people can feel fair, you know, um, where many people can learn, you know, maybe it's just something I, I do in the future, but I think that would help a lot more people than, you know, individual coaching sessions, which we do. And then also, you know, like, you know, guest workshops or boot camps like, um, like the New York East Symphony, uh, you know, do a couple camps there, um, past couple of years. So yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. I found that it's so interesting that what you're doing right now with the performance anxiety with liberated performer, I feel like there's some connection with that and the new music that you try to play with Ethel with the creativity, right? Because for me, I feel like the reason why there's performance anxiety is that there's so much tradition that precedes us that all of a sudden our teachers, our mentors, our idols are telling us to play something a certain way because it's by tradition. And I, I feel like as a result, everybody has heard this music for the last 150, 200 years that it's supposed to be played a certain way, right? But it sounds to me that Ethel and you, know, and you in particular are trying to create a new path, that um, new music, and you're creating your own tradition. You know, you're creating your own culture with Ethel, and I appreciate that a lot. Um, what's it like working with the other crew members of the quartet? I'm, I'm so curious to know. What, what's, the, what's the dynamic like during rehearsals and during performances and uh, et cetera? Uh, I mean, it's, it's great because Ethel is a quartet, but we all value the individual voice pretty equally. Um, Artistic directors who literally been there since 1998 are Ralph Ferris and Dorothy Lawson. And, you know, they'll, they'll have a say in other things that, you know, Kip Jones, the other violinist and I, you know, we, we don't mind at all. It, so it's like, you know, you, you can only get so much, you know, e equality or equity or whatever. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like we all feel very uh, valued. So like in the program, we contribute compositions. You know, we write our own music and our music gets played, you know, in, in concert. So it's awesome. Also in projects, like if we're going to take on something like Circus Wandering City, it's a group decision. If we're doing a collaboration, it's a group decision. If one person's like really not for it, then we won't do it. Um, with rehearsals, um, it's funny because we each come from a different generation. Um, so there's 30, 40, 50, and 60. And you can assume that the training was different. 
in a way, right? So, you know, Dorothy's kind of was in a culture where classical music was very strict. It was like, you know, but but because she's a pioneer, like she's very open-minded and she like doesn't, like she came on stage with me with uh, uh, Mako at uh, this club when I was doing some EDM stuff. Like, you know, she's like, she's different than like a lot of the other, um, I would say people who were raised in that very strict classical uh, place. And then you have Ralph Ferris, you know, uh, he, he toured with the who, you know, he stuff like that. So, um, you know, we all have different ways of rehearsing and we did have to go through a little growing pain. Um, again, when you replace 25% of the band with a new person, you're going to rehearse differently. Right. And we've kind of come to this kind of beautiful way of rehearsing now, which is to get the basics, just like a checklist, just get them done. So at least we can get, you know, a piece, you know, to a decent level um, without really any back and forth. It's like, it's, it's pretty simple. We come up with the ideas and then we just kind of go through the basics. And once we get the basics, then a lot of our individual personalities and uh, stuff like that, then we can, then we can get into really how to make this performance special. So kind of going back to the, to the basketball um, and, you know, references and analogies, you know, LeBron James, he won the, you know, the NBA finals, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the moment he won that series, the one, the one thing he said um, when, when reporters asked him, how did you do it? What did you do? And the one thing he said is like, I went back to basics. You know, I focus on the basics. I mastered the basics. So that way, you know, my basics don't fall um, into some kind of random black hole when the moment counts. I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, your practice strategies and practice methods, because we do um, ask, you know, a lot of our guests, like what the practice is like for each guest. So nowadays, what has your practice been like? And um, how does, you know, being an ethel influence your practice? Yeah, so I think it be good if I described uh, maybe three stages of my life. The, the first one is when I'm in school, uh, lots of technique, um, because I think there is this like defined bar. I know like music can't be judged, but there's a pretty defined bar of when somebody is considered professional, like they can be a professional. Like obviously if you're like playing out of tune most of the time, you're not gonna be a professional, but there's a certain bar that's set, whether it's by orchestra, which is a higher standard than you know something like a quartet. Or, you know, if there's more like the performance aspect of it, maybe that's higher in, you know, the solo aspect of it, right? So I think uh, my practice, you know, back in school was just hardcore technique, um, repetition, getting the right sources, of course. I had really good teachers again. Um, but then, it, you know, I think people plateau if they just keep on doing that, right? So it's like, um, then you have to really think about, you know, the, the relationship between technique and musicality, right? We have our imagination and a lot of people have great imaginations, but they can't technically translate it on the violin or they have amazing technique on the violin, but they lack the imagination, right? So it's like getting that together and then comes, you know, something like Liberated Performer where it's like, oh wait, I need to perform, you know, really well. I need to, again, the part of the program is not, is anxiety, but it's, it's self-expression. How can I fully express myself without giving to craps about things you know and just being shameless and just like putting my work out there so that's like the next thing people practice and they often forget right everybody's all on technique or they're like you know making their musical ideas but they forget the performance aspect they forget that that's a skill in itself um 
And then you get to something like COVID where I'm like, okay, March, we got kicked off of Denver. You know, my trip to Hawaii gets canceled and I'm flying home. And <laughs> before you know it, everything's canceled. So actually, I actually didn't practice that much, uh, to be honest. I took the time to really develop myself and other parts of my life because um, I do have a system that can get me back in shape to, you know, pretty tip top shape. Uh, so I trust that system because I tried it out because I honestly, I created this system uh, because I did not want to always have to practice every day. There's much more things in life that are valuable, especially, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just other things in life that matter besides the violin. And those other things actually help you become a better artist in anyway. So <laughs> my practice, you know, during COVID is less in terms of hours, but uh, I'm still trying to develop myself, you know, whether that's to become a better human being, you know, being more generous or, you know, looking for other ways to collaborate. And then, you know, as concerts are starting to come back, um, then I do have to kind of go through the technical technical stage, kind of do what LeBron does, you know, go back to the basics. But there's a certain point when, you you know, you perform so much that if you just get the basics handled, you know, the, the performance and the, the love of, you know, being in that present moment and just, you know, expressing like that, that makes it special enough. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, that's that's great. So, I mean, my practice is definitely different now than it was years ago, but I feel like it's just as effective and even if not more efficient. And I'm sure maybe you have great guests on this podcast and maybe they, they say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, everybody has their own way of expressing the way they practice. Some people practice scale, some people don't. And it sounds to me that you are the kind of person that you're not, you're practicing outside your instrument, which I think is important. Like you're, you're expanding upon your creativity and you're expanding on the knowledge that is um, that is kind of required of you now as a 21st century musician, you know, you know, we were talking about how we needed to be um, all of a sudden our own production managers and, you know, make sure the audio is good and all that stuff like you're you're implementing over two decades of practice like, you know, what the systems are, you know how to do it and you know what result you'll get as a result as a, as a result of doing these things, you know. And I think uh, it's very it's very good that you describe your practice in three stages because how we practice when we were in our teens is definitely different than how we practice in our late twenties and thirties, you know. And I want and I want the audience to really you know grasp onto this that, um, you know, we're we are no longer in our teens, right? So you know we have the education, we have degrees in music performance, but you know you. It's about um, mental practice, understanding how to practice so that way you save time in the practice room so that way you can be, you know, living life because music is life, right? Um, it's kind of like I've been really obsessed with the Ted Lasso, the, the TV show on Apple TV Plus recently. And it's like, you know, football is life, right? I think, you know, music is life too. And we have to experience life in order to play good music. Um, but I digress. Uh, Corin, it's been such a pleasure being able to speak with you and talk with you. It's uh, it's a it's a really a huge honor for me to be able to learn about your liberated performer. And uh, I'm, I hope that I get to meet you in person, you know, in uh, New York on the East Coast or um, wherever we're in the same city at the same time. And um, I will leave 
links uh, for Ethel Quartet and uh, a couple of YouTube videos that we mentioned on the podcast in the description below because uh, they're quite uh, they're quite funny and uh, it's a it's great humor for everybody. And Corin, thanks so much, and I hope to see you in person soon. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Violent Podcast. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform of your choice. It really helps us out to provide more great violent episodes for you. And again, make sure you're subscribed to the Violent Podcast because we have many, many more episodes coming out until the end of 2021. So again, stick around. We can't wait to release these episodes and we'll see you in the next Violent Podcast episode.